open to Job chapter 28. If you're using this Bible and the pew rack in front of you, it's on page 435. And I also want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible, take this Bible home with you. It's our gift to you. If you don't believe me, there's a little note right in the front that says it's our gift to you. So you don't have to feel guilty taking it. That's our gift. We want you to have God's Word. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Job chapter 28. Job continues. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They're forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires and has dust of gold. The path, that path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it's not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me, and the sea says, It's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. For he looks to the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it, he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. 
You can be seated as we pray. Father, we need you. The songs that we've sung are an express the collective state of us as a congregation this morning. And we need you, that means in part that we need to hear from you. We need your voice. So teach us today. By God's grace, by your grace, may none of us walk out of this room this morning not having understood that what we've just heard is your voice. And help me to faithfully explain what you've said, to help draw our attention to the very words in this book. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it was after a month away in the, from the book of Job, this morning we return. Our title for the series is When suffering doesn't make sense. And Job's suffering, at least from his perspective, doesn't make sense. We know from the first two chapters of Job that he was an incredibly godly man, full of integrity. He feared the Lord. So much so that God boasts of him to Satan. But Job is also a wealthy and respected man. And so Satan tells God, Job's only righteous because of what he gets out of it. So, God allows Satan to take away everything from Job. He loses his family, his wealth, his health. But yet, Job continues to bless God. He remains righteous. And because of that, God gains glory over Satan. But Job still doesn't understand his suffering. He doesn't know what was going on in the gathering in heaven. He believes, wrongly, but he believes that his suffering is because he isn't right with God. And he doesn't think God is in the right for fracturing their relationship. And at first, in Job, this causes Job to despair. But as the book goes on and as he presses in all the more and thinks more about God, the more he actually desires an audience with God. Meanwhile, there are these three friends who show up. And they have a a flat, mechanical view of God. God is a giant lever in the sky. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. It's as simple as that. God is this cosmic deterrent against evil, and incentive for good. Now, of course, for carnal man, when we have this view of God, God inevitably becomes nothing more than just a means to our own material and physical blessing. And that's exactly what happens with Job's Job's friends and their view of God. So the friends are giving advice to Job, who they believe, because of this lever-in-the-sky theology, they believe has done some really awful things. They, They give him advice on how to get all his stuff back. Tell God whatever he wants to hear, 
and you'll prosper. But Job doesn't want his stuff back. He wants to be in right relationship with God. And he also refuses to manipulate God because he has this big view of God and he knows God will see through any vain attempts to manipulate him. Now this exchange, this back and forth exchange between Job and his three friends began really in the middle of chapter 2 and has run all the way through chapter 26. And then, starting in chapter 27, Job gives one final speech. There's a few words later of his recorded in Job in response to God, but this is his final speech. And it's a long speech. It runs all the way from chapter 27 through chapter 31. And it's what we'll be looking at today. We're going to look at all the whole speech. But the whole thing centers on this idea of senseless suffering. You see, in chapter 27, Job wishes his friends would get a taste of his own senseless suffering. And in chapters 29 and 30, and even into 31, Job describes in detail his own senseless suffering. But here's the question Job's speech would have us answer. Here's the question I believe God wants us to answer. Where does Job want his friends' senseless suffering To drive them. Where does Job's own senseless suffering drive him? When our suffering in this world doesn't make sense, where should it drive us? I know that many in this room, at a certain level, all of us, have experienced some sort of unjust suffering. Maybe it's abuse. Maybe it's a workplace injustice. Maybe false motives have been assigned to you that's led to a fractured relationship. Maybe it's an untimely grief or a wasting disease. The question is, where has that senseless suffering taken us? Where has it driven us? And what I want us to do, my prayer, is that we would learn from God's Word where the Lord wants it to drive us. And in order to do that, we're going to be looking at the speech, but we can't do it at kind of an up here level. We need to get down into the world of Job. We have to re-engage what's going on. You see, Job has been accused by his friends of horrible sins. They've told him that because of his suffering, he must have done some really bad stuff. He must have defrauded the poor in order to gain his wealth. They've told him that he must have mistreated the very people that he's actually prioritized helping. They say, your suffering, Job, is exhibit A in the case against you. You must have been terribly evil to suffer so. And in the midst of this onslaught that Job has been absorbing, 
He stands up to give his final speech, addressing these three so-called friends. And in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 27, he invokes an oath. And very interestingly, he invokes the oath by the very God who he says caused his distress. That captures Job so well, doesn't it? You're the one who caused it, and yet when I need to swear by something, I will swear by the one who I know is all-powerful. And he vows that he has not committed the kind of heinous crimes for which he's been accused. That's really verses 1 to 6. And then he pivots in verse 7. Look at verse 7 of chapter 27. He says, Let my enemy be as the wicked, And let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. Now we know who his enemy is. It's the three friends. They're the ones who've risen up against him. And what does he want them? He wants them to be, quote, as the wicked or, quote, as the unrighteous. In other words, he wants them to get something that they don't deserve. He wants them to experience a kind of suffering that doesn't make sense. Why is this? Is he just so fed up with them that there's vindictiveness spewing toward them? He'd be justified in that. Well, we don't have to guess why he does this. He tells us right away in verses 11 and 12. So look at 11 and 12. I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal? Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? No, it's not simple revenge or vindictiveness. He wants them to learn something about the hand of God. He wants them to learn something about the ways of the Almighty. Now, of course, his life could have served to teach them these lessons. They could have looked at this man who was so righteous and yet was suffering so, and they could have learned what they needed to about suffering. He says, behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. You've watched me. I think of when I learned how to use a pocket knife, and I was entrusted with it. I could have learned the appropriate use by listening to my father's instructions carefully. I didn't have to learn the hard way, and neither did Job's friends. But sometimes you need a scar to learn what you need to know. And given all the empty, quote, vain, verse 12, advice that his friends were giving, Job knows they need a scar. So in verses 13 to 23, he describes what he'd like to see happen to them. And it's interesting when you read it, it pretty much echoes, broadly speaking, the things that have happened to him. That they've said, that only happens to the wicked person. He says, okay, I want you to be treated as wicked people. And this is what he wants to have happen to them. Verses 13 through 15, the loss of children. Verses 16 through 18, the loss of wealth. Verses 19 through 23, and all of it quite suddenly. With his friends, Job believes that this is how the wicked are usually treated. 
But it's also how he has been treated, though he is not wicked. And it's what he wants for them. It's what he wants. He wants them to be so treated, though even their ill treatment of him does not warrant such suffering. Now, I don't know if he's saying every specific detail, and here's what he wants for them. Remember, this is what's happened to him. And he's using almost a biographical account of this is what you say happens to the wicked. I want what happens to the wicked to be happening to you. I'm not sure that Job's actually saying, I want your children dead. But he is saying he wants them to experience unjust suffering where the kind of pain they experience in this world does not match with the kind of crime they have done. And he wants them to taste it for a reason. He wants them to learn something about the hand of God, about Almighty. And chapter 28 gives us that reason. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in chapter 28. It's what I read at the outset. Because chapter 28 is what Job has learned, and it's what he wants them to learn. He wants them to know where wisdom is found. But he doesn't tell them that out of the gate. In verses 1 to 11, he begins by describing to them a mining operation. Even to the point there in, what verse is it? Um, uh, See, this wasn't in my notes, and here I am going. There at the end of verse 4, where it's describing them, the the miners under the earth, moving from one one, uh, rope to another. Such a beautiful picture. The ground is ripped open. Through the ingenuity of man. I mean, if you think about mining, it is really amazing. How did these massive mines come about? How did we come to discover all the hidden riches that lay so deeply below the earth's surface? I mean, as Job says, the bird can fly and see everything on the surface of the earth. The falcon with his sharp eye can see the whole earth, and yet he never saw what lay below the earth, verse 7 tells us. The lion in all his power had never stepped under the earth, it says in verse 8. But we, people, human beings, have dug down to the very roots of the mountains. We're able to dam up whole rivers and cut into rock new paths for the water to flow, all so that we can gain something that we alone have discovered. Something that we know to be of great value. It's amazing. And the implications of this, it seems, are twofold. First, this shows us how powerful man is. Mining shows that we've exceeded all other created things in our strength. And it also, secondly, teaches us that there are certain things that are so valuable, they are worth seeking out, even a great effort. Things like silver, iron, copper, sapphire, gold. Now up until this point, this poem has seemed like a poem 
in praise of man. That's actually not at all what it is. Far from it. All that Job has said up to this point is really just a setup for what's about to come. And verse 12 is the hinge. It's the turning point. I want you to all look down, and I'm going to read in a second. I hope if you've been in this series, you've already marked this verse, because I said it's one of the key verses in the whole book. If you, if you mark in your Bible, you want to highlight this verse. In fact, some would say it is the key question in the whole book of Job. In fact, it's repeated even in our own passage in verse 20. So look at verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Verses 1 to 11 are in praise of humans. Because man is as great as he is, in Job's friends' minds, they believe that wisdom is ultimately found in them. Now, they wouldn't frame it like that. That's not how they'd word it. But their actions reveal that they actually believe that they are the source of wisdom. If you go back and reread their words, you'll see hints of that throughout. Listen to me. I've seen much of life. I know much. Listen to me, they'll say. But Job wants to teach them. He wants them to suffer unjustly like he has so that they can learn something. And this is the question that's so crucial that separates Job's perspective from the perspective of his friends. They answer this question differently. Again, not at a mind level, but at a practice level. Listen to how Job answers it. Where is wisdom found? First, in verses 13 and 14, he states that wisdom cannot be found. Then, in verses 15 to 19, he states that wisdom is so valuable, it simply must be found. And he, did you notice how he did that when I was reading it? By comparing it to all the precious stones that you would discover if you were mining. So wisdom can't be found. Wisdom so valuable, it must be found. And then in verses 20 to 22, he again asserts that wisdom cannot be found. I mean, look at the two bookends. Verses 13 and 14. The deep doesn't know where to find it. The sea doesn't know where to find it. Verses 20 to 22. Abaddon, what we we might call the grave, has only heard rumors of it. And death likewise. So man alone can find precious stones and metals. Man sees the value in these, so he pursues them. He goes to great lengths to find them. But wisdom is a far greater value than these precious stones. And according to verses 23 to 27, God alone can find it. Look at verses 23 to 27. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and made a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it and established it and searched it out. As sapphires are, To the created world, 
uniquely belonging to people. So wisdom is in all the world uniquely belonging to God. It's the God who gives weight to the wind. I love that expression. And lays out the very path lightning will take through the sky as it strikes. That God saw wisdom. He declared it. He established it. He searched it out. To put it differently, the God who is the architect of creation is the architect of wisdom. The one who knows creation most intimately is the one who knows wisdom most intimately. Again, let's compare the first half of the poem with the second half. Unless you can tear a massive cavern into the stony roots of the mountain, unless you have that kind of power, you're not qualified to find jewels. And similarly, unless you can control the wind, the water, and the storms, you're not qualified to find wisdom. The miner is to precious metals what God is to wisdom. So there you have it. Mankind simply cannot know wisdom just as the lion and the falcon cannot know gold. So man cannot know wisdom. But then there's verse 28. God speaks, or more precisely, Job quotes God, which is important because it means that Job has some level of revelation from God. Keep in mind, Job didn't have a Bible. He didn't even have an Old Testament like we do. But at least we know that he had this. He had one anchor, one thing that he knew God had spoken, the Word of God. And what is it that he knows God has said In verse 28, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Now, if you're around the Bible much, you've heard that phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's really a very key phrase to understanding all of Scripture. But for such a key phrase, it's often misunderstood. Well, you can go through the book of Proverbs and and look at every time the phrase is used, and what you'll discover is, to put it simply, the fear of the Lord is realizing how big God is and how small we are. It's not the same as being afraid of God. Think about it. I just want you to imagine, hypothetically, you've just brought your two sons to a Marley's game and you're driving home. It's late at night, again, hypothetically, and you want to get them into bed. And so you're driving down Mountain View and you see the little uh, walking timer going down and you know, I got to get through this light. So you just give it a little bit of extra gas and as you're doing it, ah, it turns yellow and you go right on through. Not that I would ever do anything like this. (laughs) And then all of a sudden you see in your rearview mirror a police officer turn out 
the lights turn on. Now, when you see that, you pull over. You oblige. When a police officer asks you to do something, you do what it's, you said, or you do what he says. And it's not because you're afraid of him. It's not like you think he's going to start pulling out guns and shooting at you if you don't pull over. But it's because you know he has the full power of the state behind him. You're, you're no match for such a power. So when you're told, even if you don't understand it or agree with it, in that case I did understand it, uh, I did. <laughs> what we're saying in that is that we fear the police officer. And, at least in Canada, that fear is actually a good thing. And to be rightly oriented towards God, realizing how small we are, how great He is, that is the fear of the Lord. You, you might call it proper reverence. Sometimes when you talk about the fear of the Lord, reverence is what we hear. But it's not just reverence for an office. It's actually a felt reverence. Let me explain what I mean. Have you ever been in a situation where just all of a sudden you grasped that the, the other person you were with, maybe alone somewhere, could hurt you quite badly if they wanted to. It's happened to me where I've been in the presence of an overwhelmingly superior physical force. Not you, Charles Edwards. <laughs> they might not be a threatening person. It might not be a mean person at all, but just because they're so much physically superior, their mere presence makes you feel a certain way. And it's not just a cognitive reverence, right? It's, it's a felt reverence, in this case, for their physical strength, and it could be in other categories as well. See, wisdom comes when we begin to feel, to grasp how little we know, how little we understand, just how weak we are, just how little we can actually accomplish. And at the same time of grasping that, we begin to feel, to grasp how knowing God is, how much He understands, how powerful He is, how much He can actually do. It's the more we get that equation right, the more we feel the fear of the Lord the more He grants us access to His wisdom. And of course, coming with that, the understanding that allows us to actually walk in the ways that are right and avoid the ways that are evil. So the fear of the Lord is grasping how big God is and how small we are. But I think we need to dig down even deeper into this. I know I spent some time on this phrase, but we need to dig down a little deeper because Job's friends believed in God. And if you would ask them, they would have said, and you can tell this because you re just read their speeches, that they believed God was bigger than them and that he needed to be revered. So what is it that they're missing? What is it that Job feels like they need to learn? Well, remember that their theological system basically had God 
in the service of man. He's there to encourage good behavior and discourage bad behavior. And he does that by rewarding those who do good. So if you want stuff, you do what God wants you to do. And so in that way, you make God to be in the service of us. So regardless of what they would have said in their systematic theology, as their theology was put into practice, they were big, and God was small. Indeed, for them, the very bigness of their God was only in the service of self. We do the same thing. We want God to be big so He can give us big stuff. We say we believe in a God far bigger than us. We so say that only because it allows us to be bigger. And non-Christians can see right through this. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you've seen this. You see exactly what we're talking about. You see right through it. I want you to know, if you're here, the Bible agrees with your assessment. It's not the view of God that the Bible puts forth. He's not the big power that really only allows me to get what I want and keep believing what I already believed because a big God is on my side. That's not the view you'll see of God in the Scriptures. And that is not what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is to actually feel, to grasp just how mighty and powerful God is. And just how small we are. So the question of verse 12 and verse 20. Where is wisdom found? It is not found in us. God alone has access to it. And we only get a taste of it when we see how small we are and how great God truly is. Job wanted his friends to to taste unjust suffering. Because he believed it would help them see the emptiness of man's wisdom. And you who have suffered unjustly, we who have suffered unjustly, know just how empty man's wisdom actually is. The flimsy man-made philosophies be the atheistic, religious, or even so-called Christian. Don't hold up when pounded with the hard realities of this broken world. We can mine copper, but we can't make sense of our own world. And if you turn to the book of Job or or the whole Bible looking for another trite, well-packaged system that settles the question of unjust suffering ever so nicely, you simply aren't going to be satisfied. Instead, it tells us that when we can predict the exact path any one lightning bolt is going to take, only then Will we be qualified to be wise enough to make sense of the suffering of this world?
In other words, our small minds cannot get it. But we do get this help from Job and the rest of Scripture, which is crucial. And that is, we must rightly orient ourselves to the Creator of this world who actually does get it and who's good and who cares for us and sent His Son Jesus because He loved us so much that He was going to redeem this world from its brokenness and even redeem us from the brokenness of our own hearts. We need, we need to move, orient ourselves to Him, seeing how big He is and how small we are. And we need to grasp that fear of the Lord that is so good that allows us to get through whatever it is that is bearing down on us. Job feels that. Which is why in chapters 29, 30, and 31, he is leading toward a request for an audience with God. He's done with his friends. Their man-made philosophies don't hold up. He wants to hear from God. His own suffering has been senseless, so he knows what he needs. If chapter 27 expressed his desire that his friends get a taste of senseless suffering. Chapters 29 and 30 describe in detail his own senseless sufferings. So in chapter 29, he describes the blessing that he used to experience. So look at verses 7 through 11, just as a sampling. 29, 7 to 11. He says, When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square... The young men saw me and I withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. And all this, verse 12 says, is because he was righteous. He helped the poor and the fatherless. He caused, it said, he caused the widow's heart to sing. It said he was the eyes to the blind and the feet to the lame. And according to verse 17, he even came to the aid of victims of injustice. And then in verse 18, all the way to the end of verse 25, He again describes the fruit of this kind of righteous living. And he ends with those last two lines in verse 25. I lived like a king among its troops, like one who comforts mourners. You like how those two things are paired together to capture who he was? There's a sense of a king among his troops. People realize his strength and his his good thinking, and, and they look to him and they trust him. But they also look to him like one who's come alongside somebody who's mourned and ached and he's been there for them. So he is respected both for his strength and his compassion. But then chapter 30 comes and describes a complete reversal. If chapter 29 was the good old days, chapter 30 is the bad nowadays. Look at verse 1 of chapter 30. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with my do- the dogs of my flock. Or look at verses 15 and 17. Terrors are turned upon me. 
My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity is passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. I want to say over and over again, you who are suffering, God understands. In his word, he's put verses like this. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. God knows, and he cares, and he even gives voice to the pain you feel. That's what Job felt. And if Job attributed the good old days to his righteous living, he attributes the bad nowadays to God. Again in chapter 30, look at verse 11. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my present presence. And then look at verses 19 to 21. God has cast me into the mire, and I become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for your help. You do not answer me. I stand. You only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. If there is a God, and Job never doubts that there is, we simply cannot escape that God is somehow sovereign even over the evil that befalls us. Job's good old days had given way to the bad nowadays with no possible explanation besides God has willed it. And so in chapter 31, then, he makes his final plea. First, he, he, he's really declaring his innocence. And it's this amazing statement of innocence. In fact, it would be good for us on our own, if you ever want to just kind of check your soul to see how you're doing, to go through chapter 31 and compare yourself against it. Verse 1, he's refused to look with lust upon a woman. Verses 5 to 7, he is not twist, he's never twisted the truth for his own gain. Verse 9, he won't commit adultery. He's not committed adultery. Verse 13, he's cared for his employees. Verses 16 to 21, he's made sure to treat the poor and marginalized with dignity and care. Verses 24 and 25, he's not chased after wealth. Verses 26 and 27, he's not worshipped the gods of his day. Verse 29, he hasn't allowed past wrongs to embitter his soul and prompt him to revenge. Profoundly, verses 33 and 34, he's refused the kind of faux righteousness that's designed to gain the approval of man instead of of God. And, verses 38 through 39, he has been a good steward of God's creation. Now, his point in all this is unmistakable. His suffering is unjust. It is senseless suffering. He keeps saying, if I'd done any of these things, I would have deserved what I got. 
But he insists, I have not done that kind of wrong, so why am I suffering? And his senseless suffering drives him to the Almighty, to the one who is wise. Look at verses 35 through 37. This is really the, the, the pinnacle of his, of his closing speech. It's his final appeal. Verses 35 through 37. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. He's done with man's wisdom. He wants to hear from God. His own senseless suffering drives him not to man's wisdom, but to the wisdom of God. And with that, Job's words are ended. So where does Job's senseless suffering drive him? Not away from God and into man's wisdom, but away from man's wisdom and into God, the only place he can find true answers. And why does Job want his friends to suffer unjustly? So that they too would be driven to see that wisdom is not found in man, but in God. He wants to shatter their vain man-made notions and philosophies so they would be freed to learn again from God. And when it is the God of the Bible that we press into, we learn that He is loving and He's near. We learn of Jesus who died to deal with the brokenness of this world. And so our fear of the Lord is a good fear. For the one with all that power is near. He cares. And he's doing something about our plight. When it was determined that I was finally responsible for my first pocket knife, and it wasn't my parents who determined that, it was my uncle. My father did teach me how to be safe with it. But it wasn't until I nearly sliced through the tendon on my finger that I really learned. And for most of us, it requires a little bit of senseless suffering to really learn the fear of the Lord. But it's a lesson we must all learn. As the rest of their scriptures say, eternity depends upon it.